Now, we're continuing in 2 Timothy, and we're picking up uh, essentially where we left off last week, uh, going back a couple of verses. We're beginning with 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. We looked at 20 and 21 at the conclusion of our sermon message last week, and we're going to start there uh, today with the reading. And we'll go all the way through chapter 3, verse 9. So Paul's message to Timothy. Remember how personal this message is. We can even describe this as biographical uh, theology because of the close and intense relationship between Paul and Timothy. Uh, Paul the mentor, Timothy the one who he trained and discipled. And Paul who is upon the verge of uh, the end of his life. Uh, he knows that things have gone against him in Nero's court. He knows that Cedar's edict is going to be that he's going to die. He has spoken of his departure in that way. And so Paul's words here are really his last will and testament, so to speak, uh, to Timothy, wanting to encourage Timothy in light of the certainty of death, but also in light of the certainty of what we as Christians face after death, to stay galvanized in his intention to serve Christ and to serve Christ well, to make Christ the complete and total aim of his life. So picking up then, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20, we read these words. Now, in a great house, there is not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, so they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jans and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, corrupted of mind and disqualified regarding the truth, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. And so this morning we'll consider these words. Let's pray and commit this time to the Lord once again. Our God and Father, we do uh, thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that even as Paul will declare uh, in just a short um, few verses ahead that all of your word, all scripture is breathed out by you. 
And we know it to be profitable for the teaching of doctrine and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness so that the man of God, uh, the shepherd teacher, but really all of us as believers can be competently and adequately and thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we come to your scripture, Lord, praying for listening ears and obedient hearts. Enable us to understand the scriptures, but enable us likewise to be motivated so that every place your truth is declared and every place your duty is expressed, we will embrace it fully, heart and soul, mind and strength, in order that we might love you above all else and love our neighbor as ourselves. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So when we come to this passage this morning, we would recognize as we read through Second Timothy that there's no real clear break between what was said before and what comes, that uh, uh, commentators have mentioned that that Paul here is uh, very repetitive in what he writes to Timothy. Uh, it's as though it's an overflowing of his heart and a kind of a, a stream of inspired, God-given, God-breathed consciousness. And so Paul will say something, and later he'll say the same thing again. And, and so there's a kind of repetition. But there's also some clear things that Paul does say, in particular blocks of material. And so this morning we've actually are going to look at uh, the block that's uh, from Second Timothy chapter two twenty through twenty six, which describes things in one way and describes one particular kind of thing, and that is the vessel of the Lord. And then we're going to look in chapter three through the first nine verses, which describes something that stands quite in contrast. It's the, the contrast that we have here between uh, the one who commits his life to Christ and who is that vessel for the Lord's service, and then the one who is uh, entirely the opposite, one who is an ungodly person who, though under the guise of religion, uh, really wants to uh, live in a manner that's thoroughly corrupt. Now, for the sake of our message, though, because I don't want to have the message end on a negative note, uh, I'm going to invert uh, our treatment of the passage. That is to say, uh, I want to begin with chapter 3 first, and then come back to chapter two, because this is a message of contrast. And I want us to begin with what we would call the, the bad news and the negative stuff first, and then enter on what is positive, uh, finish on what is positive and what illustrates all the dynamics and dimensions of the gospel. So this morning we have a message of contrast, and it can be summed up this way, uh, that the vessel of vice is compared to the vessel of virtue. Uh, the vessel of vice is devoted to self, and his life will victimize others, while the vessel of, of virtue is consecrated to Christ, and his life finds eternal purpose in those useful works for God that blesses others. Now, that's the big picture. That's the big idea. And what we're really talking about, on the one hand, the corrupt would be those who are religious pretenders. And uh, really, on those who are consecrated, those who are the godly leadership within the church. So we begin with chapter three, the first nine verses, uh, dealing with the corrupt. And what the Apostle Paul lays out here is going to be the, the character and conduct of the ungodly uh, pretender. Now, obviously, we have Paul here returning to one of his dominant themes, both in First Timothy and in Second Timothy. And that is the presence of evil men arising from within the church who have these wolfish intentions uh, in, order, in order that they might molest and pervert and incite people falling away from Christ. And the vehicle for doing this is going to be the teaching of false doctrines. Uh, 
Uh, and we read especially here that these men are going to especially target those who are vulnerable. And so the Apostle Paul is going to give us uh, characteristics of their character and of their conduct. But before he does, I want you to look at verse 1 in particular. Because there in verse 1 he says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Now, according to the New Testament, the last days actually began with the inauguration of the kingdom with the first coming of Christ. And then the last days have their climax and their ending with the second coming of Christ. But during this period of time, the Apostle Paul says there are going to be these episodes of difficulty, even when he calls terrible times. These are going to come. And he means by these terrible times what is terrible primarily for the church, uh, not necessarily for the world. Now, the world can be doing quite well, but it may be difficult for the church when the world is doing quite well. But he's speaking specifically for the church because Paul is concerned about the church and he's concerned about what Timothy as a godly shepherd or any godly shepherd must do in light of these kinds of difficult and terrible times. Now, just to note, not every day or every season in the life of the church is going to be like this. Some seasons will be terribly difficult times for the people of God because of the presence and the rising up of this kind of an enemy. Once again, this goes back to Paul's concern that he had already spoken a decade earlier. Uh, we find this back in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, where the apostle, speaking to the Ephesian elders when he called them uh, to himself there at Miletus uh, on his last missionary journey, he basically said this, I know that after my departure, speaking of his death, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own midst, even arising from your own midst, there are going to come those who are going to speak twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now, Paul's departure is coming. So Paul is reminded Timothy of what is what he is going to face, what the church is going to face. Men like wolves are going to rise up, and they're going to come from even within the church. And they're going to savagely prey upon the people of God. And so now Paul is describing ways to recognize them. He's going to lay out several important characteristics. But there's another element that we need to add here uh, that is, is so familiar to the Apostle Paul. In fact, it comes out of Paul's pre-Christian background. Paul had already witnessed this kind of thing within his own Jewishness, Judaism, before he became a Christian. Because Paul himself was a Pharisee, and Paul was quite aware that the scribes and the Pharisees, as well as the Sadducees, the, the ones who operated the temple, charge of all the immense wealth of the temple treasury, Paul already had abundant exposure to religious pretenders who were concerned not about the people of God, but, but really about self-aggrandizement. So keep in mind that when Paul describes these wolfish men, he has already seen this in his own background within first century Judaism. So, verses 2 through 5. What Paul says about these uh, corrupt uh, pretenders is this, first of all. They are vessels of vice. Now, if you look at this list, uh, all the way into verse 5, uh, it's comprehensive. I mean, not exhaustive, but it is comprehensive. There are... Eight, 17, 18, or 19 terms, depending upon you how you translate the Greek, the Greek here. There are all of these terms that describe deep human 
flaws. Every one of them is a contrary to virtue. And that's why they're properly called vices. Uh, they're negative moral qualities. They are moral flaws that God's word judges as hateful in the eyes of God. Now, there's no time to examine all of them, but it will be profitable for us to look at a certain few. The first of these, and in many ways, the, the, the apex of all of this is lovers of self. And of course, what Paul wants us to see is that is going to be in contrast to someone who's a lover of Christ, a lover of God. This is the greatest flaw, to be in love with oneself, to be self-promotional, to put oneself first is the greatest of all moral failings and the source of all moral failings because anyone who puts oneself first, who essentially lives according to the mantra, uh, look out for number one, is a man who cannot love Christ, a man who essentially will actually hate Christ. Uh, because such a man would, would actually despise the ethic of Christ in terms of his own life, the I am third conduct that, that Christ called us to, and the I am third conduct and code that is preeminent upon those who would be shepherds within the church. The second thing, though, is the lover of money. Uh, those who would use the money for financial aggrandizement. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were extremely guilty of this. Uh, when Jesus said that no one could serve both God and money, we read in Luke 16, 14, that the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, the same idea, the same term, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. Now, I want you to stop and think about that for a moment. They ridiculed the very Son of God. When he was saying that we should not love money, they loved money, and therefore they ridiculed Christ. Now, we look at both of these, and we could say that the, the love of self and the love of money truly uh, represent the root of all sorts of evil in this life. Put these two together, and you have the source of, of all sorts of other vices that we find within the world. Now, the third thing I think it's important for us to recognize here, because these men uh, pretend to be leaders, is arrogance. And that style of leadership clearly is the most popular that we find within the world, but it has also thrived at times within the church. Uh, such a person uh, is above being corrected. Uh, such a person is above being taught by anyone else. Uh, pretty much the approach they take to leadership is something like this. You do so because I say so. Uh, and sadly, even within the church, there are men who get away with that kind of arrogant style of leadership. And yet it's totally opposite to what Jesus said. You know, if you remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verses 43, 44, 45, he called his disciples to him and he said to them, uh, you know that those who are considered rulers uh, of the Gentiles, they lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it must not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came to be not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So the very way in which Jesus prescribed that the leaders of his people must serve is quite the opposite to the way the world operates. And it's everything that's opposite to uh, this idea of arrogance. But then uh, the Apostle Paul mentions as characteristic of, of these pretend leaders, uh, abusiveness and brutalness. These things really go together. Uh, arrogant men in leadership positions will treat others in abusive and even verbally brutal ways. Perhaps you've been there in the business world. Perhaps you've been there in the educational world. How very sad if you have been there and experienced that within the church. Incredibly terrible. But maybe you've been there in terms of a cult, uh, one of these other religious groups that God has rescued you from. It's a sure sign that the man who's leading is not a genuine shepherd when the way he treats others is an abusive, belittling, and even verbally brutal manner. But then we come to the fifth idea, putting this all together in, in what becomes the aggregate great vice of us all is godliness that is actually deceptive. So in verse 5, Paul says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. That is, uh, having, uh, as it were, masquerading as godly, but because it's a masquerade, they actually know nothing truly experientially of what godliness is actually like and the dynamic and power of godliness in a person's life. They live by the appearance of godliness, but they don't have a spiritual power that actually comes from walking with Christ and having the communion of the Holy Spirit. Now, this then becomes, as it were, the most dangerous of all of these vices, because when, are, when men are able to pull this off, they are so dangerous in terms of their power and their influence uh, because they have this power and influence over other people. People will look at them and see them as men of God, but they're not men of God at all. And, and you know, here we have this in Scripture. It's an important lesson for all Christians. The Word of God tells us that this is so, but why do people still fall for it? Uh why can we still be deceived? Uh, why can men who've been elected out of a congregation to be the, the elder board uh, put up with such displays for, for even years before they finally realize that they don't have a true shepherd, but they have a wolf in their midst? It's, it's, it's in, in some sense incredible. But we recognize from what Scripture says here that this is a problem. All of us need to be praying that God would Keep us alert and praying that God would deliver us from such wolves masquerading as shepherds. So then, how does Timothy say we need to address men who are like this? Well, in verse 5, the end of verse 5, he says, they are to be avoided. Uh, now, this is not just instruction for Timothy, but really for the whole church. Essentially, Timothy, Paul is saying to Timothy, we must be perceptive enough to detect these kinds of flaws in men who are perhaps rising up within the church. And the best way to keep their influence out of the church is this thing that he says, avoid them. Now, he doesn't mean to avoid them like we're doing under COVID-19 in terms of quarantine. No, but he's talking about avoiding them in terms of a separation from their influence, a separation from their influence. It may be impossible to separate from them totally personally, but to separate from their influence. So in terms of practical application, don't make friends with them. Or if you think you have been friends with them, begin to disengage. 
Don't go to hear them. Uh, don't join their Bible studies. Don't watch them on the Internet. Don't listen to their blogs. Uh, don't read their blogs. Don't listen to their their uh, podcasts and so forth. Avoid them in order to avoid their evil influence. And then the next uh, devastating characteristic that Paul points out is that of preying upon vulnerable women. And he talks about this in verses six and seven. And he says, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Now, Paul doesn't say that all of the wolves are predators of this sort, but he does say that among those who are wolves, there are those who will specifically uh, target certain kinds of women. And what's interesting here is, is the Greek language, this description of what these particular men do with women is so powerful that one commentator describes it as the victimizer uh, gaining a complete psychological dominance over his victim. Now think about that. Pretending to be a religious person, gaining a psychological dominance over uh, the one he purportedly is teaching and instructing. But notice, Paul doesn't say that all women are like this, but some were. And the weakness, weakness that Paul speaks of here is of women who are morally weak, which means they've been morally broken, who have sinful burdens, uh, who've been led astray by their own broken desires, uh, women who have lost their moral compass, and therefore they are unable, no matter how much they're learning, to ever arrive at the truth. Uh, these women, women were vulnerable prey, and these men would and could victimize such women with their false teachings. Now, what Paul says doesn't automatically equate to these women being immorally treated like sexually immoral, just that they've been captured, they're under the control of the teaching. But when you look at the profile of these men, the way Paul describes them, and then you look at uh, the many, many cultic movements that began in the United States during the 70s, and then some of them lasted and proliferated into the 80s. Uh, if you have followed any of this, if you've read anything about the men who raised up, almost invariably, they had a coterie of, of women who were their chief followers. And then you begin to see all of the sexual depravities that began to happen within those groups that purported to be religious and Christ-honoring and God-honoring. You begin to see where these things go. You begin to see where ungodly wolves with predation will use religion to gain these kinds of things. Now, of course, what Paul is doing here is he's condemning men who do such things. He condemns men who would take advantage of women who have lost their way. And then fourthly, though, and this is a hopeful note, Paul says that they're going to have limited success. And that is to say, that's the hopeful note that Paul comes to at the end of verse 9. Now, he arrives at that conclusion by comparing these wolfish and predatory men to Jans and Jambres, uh, two men who were among the Egyptian magicians, uh, during the days of Moses, uh, men who opposed Moses. Their names are not in the biblical record, but a number of Jewish sources mention them, as well as even a Roman source around the time of Christ. Paul compares these wolfish deceivers as men like them. 
uh, who oppose the truth, who are corrupted in their minds, who are disqualified regarding the faith. But then Paul says their progress and success will be limited. And this is true. Church history has actually proven Paul to be right. Uh, we can take, for instance, the Gnostic movement that was beginning at the end of the first century, then began to flourish in the second century. They were these the Gnostic movement had many men who were just like this. But that movement and all of its false teachings and its corrupt leaders soundly defeated again and again by the church in the early centuries of Christianity. And it was, in fact, the church that spread throughout the entire Roman Empire and not the Gnostic movement. Now, just to sum up, let's return to the earlier point of Paul's background and the background of Christ as well among the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Not all of the scribes, Pharisees and Sadducees, but a sufficiently large number, a large majority of them, uh, such that uh, a large majority of them who carried themselves around with this form of godliness but denying its true power. This was so characteristic of the scribes, Pharisees and Sadducees that Jesus could we would call it stereotyping, but Jesus could speak directly about all of them. Uh, the, the New Testament describes them as men who were lovers of money and lovers of self, but they weren't lovers of God, and therefore they weren't lovers of Christ. They were vessels of vices, which is why Jesus pronounced judgment upon them. You could read that for yourself in Matthew 23, but here are some of the things that Jesus said. He said, these are men who do not practice the very morals that they preach. He said, these are men who will lay heavy burdens of moral obedience upon those who listen to them, but they never lift a finger to help them at all with these burdens. Uh, they are men who do all of their religious deeds, their righteous deeds, their good deeds, in order to be seen by others, you know, virtue signaling. Uh, they will shut up the kingdom of God in people's faces, uh, but, but not allow anyone to enter, really. Uh, they are zealous to make converts, but once they make these converts, Jesus says, they make them twice the sons of hell as they themselves are. Outwardly, he says, they appear to be righteous to others, but inwardly, full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, he calls them a brood of vipers. And Paul is pointing out that the church, the pillar, and the buttress of the truth in its near future and beyond is going to be infiltrated uh, even as Judaism was infiltrated by men who were like this. And that is why godly leadership is so vital. But that godly leadership would, in the final analysis, face and overcome these wolfish predators. So now then we come back to the earlier part of the passage. We return to chapter 2, beginning in verse 20 through 26. And here we see that Paul is going to place before Timothy uh, the great contrast of the corrupted with those who are consecrated. Uh, the consecrated who are going to display the character and conduct of godly leadership. Now we can organize what Paul says here in verses 20 through 26 into four specific descriptions. The first 20 to 21, where we revisit uh, this whole thing of vessels in a household. And there, the apostle Paul is going to say that godly leadership are vessels that are going to be useful for God's purposes. Now, that's the very point where we ended our message last time. You know, there Paul was connecting Timothy to the certainty of death. 
but also the certainty of the outcome of death for every Christian because of the gospel in light of the victory of Jesus over a death through his resurrection and how Christ brought life and immortality to light. And so uh, Paul there was saying that every Christian, Timothy, you and every Christian ought to be galvanized uh, in terms of how you live, to live for nothing less than the glory of Christ. Because if we have only one life to spend, then the best way to spend it is to live for our Savior, Jesus Christ. So now Paul is talking about how do we do that? And this illustration of the vessel in the household illustrates how this would be so. We are to consecrate ourselves from everything that is dishonorable unto everything that's honorable. And when we do that, we're going to be vessels that are ready and useful for any good work and every good work that the master, Jesus Christ, would call us to. So what is this consecration like? It's not a great mystery. Uh, in the vessel illustration, Paul says it's removing from our lives everything that's dishonorable, which is essentially removing from our lives uh, all those things that are worldly practices and worldly desires, all the things that would characterize the world and worldly people. Now, if we need a roadmap here, Paul gives it and what he says about vessels of vice. So in terms of cleansing ourselves from those things are, that are dishonorable, we have to cleanse our heart from being lovers of self and from being lovers of money and from arrogance and from abusiveness, all the things that Paul mentions, so that we will no longer be lovers of pleasure, but rather that we be lovers of God. Uh, we especially must cleanse ourselves from all the hypocrisy of outwardly looking like we're godly and righteous, but inwardly being full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The only way we can do this, of course, is to live by the gospel and its grace and the work of Christ. The only way we can do this is to essentially identify with and adopt what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2.20. Here's the heart of Paul saying, how do we live the Christian life? And he says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh. The life that I now live in the flesh, excuse me, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul is saying we live by resting completely in the finished work of Christ, uh, that, that totally redeems us from all of our sins, past, present, future. Uh, the work of Christ that gives us our salvation and our justification. And then we continue to live by the indwelling presence of Christ in terms of his Holy Spirit within us. We live by faith, constantly by the faith that that spirit of the living God is going to work within us to will and to do God's good pleasure. It's Christ's work for us and Christ's work in us. It's resting and depending upon Christ, the whole Christ, for salvation and service. It's recognizing and believing Jesus when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's that vital union with Christ by faith. Now, practically, what does this look like? It always means coming back to the means of grace. It always means that. Uh, we may grow and grow and grow as Christians, but we never grow beyond the fundamental need 
and the fundamental disciplines of the primary means of grace, which is the word of God, the knowledge of the word of God, the study of the word of God, the feeding upon the word of God and prayer. Uh, having that communion with God in prayer, as well as our corporate worship, and then the great necessity of godly fellowship. And that naturally leads us to verse 22, where the second thing that Paul says is that the consecrated, those who are consecrated to be vessels of use for the Lord, are those who are going to pursue virtue and the fellowship of the godly. Paul tells Timothy to flee and to pursue, to flee from the passions that are that young men are prone with, and to pursue godly virtues, righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. Now, here's the great contrast. Instead of pursuing vulnerable, weak women like the corrupt pretenders, uh, we are to pursue the fellowship of godly, like-minded brothers in Christ. Pursue the godly life with godly brothers. It's the fellowship of the godly that will keep us pursuing the consecrated life. Uh, this is true for Timothy, the shepherd teacher. And that means it's got to be true for all of us. All of us need the fellowship of godly people who are engaged in calling upon the Lord from a pure heart in order to envelop us with that kind of influence that will keep us consecrated unto the Lord. The third characteristic, though, is what Paul says in verse 23, that the godly leader who's, who wants to be faithful and useful to the Lord is going to be one who's going to avoid foolish people with foolish ideas. In verse 23, Paul says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Now, we've touched on this before. Uh, Paul and Timothy and New Testament leaders, all the wise and godly leadership throughout the church history, have, have given us the, this kind of understanding. Uh, foolish ideas, foolish people, uh, they're always going to be in and around the church. How does God a leadership protect the people of God? How do we encourage the people of God to have nothing to do with them? Well, it's impossible to, uh, it's impossible by any kind of rule to separate uh, godly people from foolish people. What I mean by this is uh, the church might try to give you a list of people you can listen to. And the church might try to give you a list of blog sites you can go to, or, or these are the books you can read. Or The church could try theoretically to essentially state, this is what you can listen to. This is what you can read. You can only believe this stuff. Here are the approved set of teachers and so forth. The church has never, look, the New Testament church never did that. And when the church has tried to do anything like that, it's never really worked. Uh, we can't publish any kind of list that says, don't read this, don't listen to that. Rather, the approach of the New Testament must always be the approach of wisdom, which is to say that, Paul says to Timothy, when you see foolish and ignorant people spouting foolish and ignorant controversies, Timothy, have nothing to do with them. Uh, they are not the people, and those are not the arguments or the discussions to engage. So don't engage. That kind of thing is going to breed quarrels. Well, what kinds of things? What kinds of things was Paul talking about? What kinds of things might come to mind in our day? Well, in, in Paul's day, it so often involved the untrained teachers who are trying to be teachers of the law. 
Paul doesn't say engage them, prove them wrong. Paul tells Timothy, shut them down. Don't let them have a voice within the church. Now, the word for foolish here uh, comes over, the word morose comes over into English as the word moronic or moron. Uh, and the word ignorant means untrained. And so that's what Paul's concerned about. He's concerned about controversies that involve untrained people who are spouting foolish ideas. And you say, but, but again, okay, so what would that be like today? Well, let me give you one. It's the King James only version controversy. There are those who want to say, uh, unless you're using the King James version, uh, unless you use this perfect translation, you're robbing the people of God of the word of God and you are a bad shepherd. And I'm just going to say it blunt. That's a terribly foolish and ignorant argument. And here's why. It demonstrates that someone who spouts that doesn't realize, doesn't know, doesn't recognize that the apostles themselves, the writers of the New Testament, often, most often, quote from the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's a good translation, but it's not perfect. By, by no means is it perfect. Uh, and sometimes the New Testament writers will, will, will take it upon themselves to retranslate something into a better Greek representing a better form of the Hebrew. They'll change it slightly for greater accuracy. But the fact that the apostles could use an imperfect translation, but nevertheless was a competent and adequate translation, tells us that people who are pushing the King James agenda really don't know what they're talking about and saying that you're robbing people of the word of God. But then if, if their position was true, then what translation in German is the perfect translation or in Korean is the perfect translation or in, in uh, the Portuguese of Brazil is the perfect translation? It's a foolish and ignorant, meaning it's untrained people who force this. It's a foolish and ignorant argument. There are lots of others, but at least that one I can point out to you. So for the people of God, listen to Paul, listen to Timothy, grow some discernment. If you're reading someone who's supposedly Christian out there on the Internet, but you can't check out whether he's trained or not or where he got trained. Remember this. It shows up here in what Paul says. Paul never endorses untrained teachers. Untrained teachers, the foolish and the ignorant, are dangerous to the people of God, and they generate far more controversy and quarrel quarrels than they do any good teaching. And we come then to the fourth point here, verses 24, 25, 26, where consecrated shepherds are those who will correct with gentleness. Look at the verses again. Paul says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, look at this picture of the good shepherd teacher. This is the man who's going to avoid corrupt vessels. He's going to avoid their influence. He's going to refuse to fellowship with them in any way. But he also, on the other side, avoids getting engaged with foolish and ignorant people promoting foolish and ignorant arguments because that breeds quarrel, quarrels. So here's why Paul says this. He says, first of all, 
the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Now, it's not the case that a shepherd teacher never speaks with someone he disagrees with. Not at all. Paul says he's supposed to correct his opponents, but with gentleness and kindness and patience and enduring evil and with all the skill of a capable teacher. But Timothy is being advised here by the apostle to look at these matters and to make a decision with wisdom, asking if engaging somebody is going to give a, dis, a, a someone you disagree with. Is this going to bring about a discussion that generates heat versus light or light rather than heat? If it's going to generate heat rather than light, then it's something you really have to leave alone. Uh, if it's going to become a debate where someone has to win rather than a dialogue, which leads to a greater understanding and builds toward the truth, then Paul says, Timothy, leave it alone. Don't do it. Avoid these things. Don't go there. And then verse 25, 26, Paul gives the further perspective. What the Lord's servant must hope in and rely upon with respect to correcting an opponent. And essentially, Paul is telling Timothy, it's not your skill, uh, it's not your native ability to open up the mind and the heart of someone who's in error. Rather, your hope, our hope, lies uh, when we have to correct someone with respect to the truth. It, the truth. It must, our hope must lie in God and what God is going to do. Paul says that we must trust in God's own wisdom and God's own power to act in someone's life. Yes, uh, Paul is telling Timothy, you, you must gently correct those who are wrong. There's no question about that. You must always set forth the truth. You have to make the truth of God's word clear. You have to rightly handle the word of God, as it says earlier in chapter 2 and verse 15. But, Timothy, that's where your job ends. The rest is up to God. It's up to God's choice to act, and it's up to his timing to act, and he may or he may not. But if God does choose to act, and that is our hope, here's what God does. First, it's he who grants repentance. Now, no repentance means a change of mind. And therefore, it's God who grants any, uh, God who grants a change of a person's mind, a change of a person's beliefs, a change of a person's understanding and attitudes. It's God who grants that. And then that begins a movement toward a knowledge of the truth, where the one God is granting, uh, where the one in whom God is granting the repentance, that person's going to come to his senses. That person's going to regain a, a right understanding of what this is all about. And then the consequence of that, Paul says, is that person is going to escape the snare of the devil, who's been locked into wrong beliefs, who through those wrong beliefs has been held captive by the devil. Uh, in essence, Paul is saying, even a Christian can be held captive by the devil. The devil may have a certain foothold over a person's, a certain area of a person's beliefs, because just because we're Christians doesn't mean we're not susceptible to the lies of the enemy. Just because we're Christians doesn't mean our, our theology and understanding of things are going to be perfect. Now, some of this is not so serious, but some of it can be very, very serious. And it's only God who can ultimately grant us the understanding to escape the devil's snares. And the last thing it says is when we, when we are ensnared by the devil in this way, we're being held captive uh, to do his will, which is to say that whenever we have inadvertently 
embraced wrong ideas and hold wrong beliefs with respect to Scripture, with respect to the doctrine of the Trinity, with respect to the, the person and work of Christ, and with respect to the nature of the church. Whenever we have wrong ideas, to some degree or other, we're working the will of the devil. And by the way, it's going to be found in studying the Scriptures and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ that we do the best that we can to keep from all of this happening in our own lives. Now, Paul has said a lot here. The, the main thing that Paul is concerned about here is drawing this very strong contrast between those who are consecrated, who are going to be useful for the Lord's work, and then those who are corrupt, who are deceivers, who are going to seek to victimize people within the church, uh, to pull people away. The one uh, whose heart is given over to Christ, the other whose heart is actually given over to the devil. Uh, the one uh, is committed to the idea, I must take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The other who basically doesn't realize it, he's taken every thought captive to the obedience of Satan, while he thinks what he's doing is promoting his own life, aggrandizing his own life, bringing glory to himself. But uh, the way of the wicked is doomed. Now we have to finish here. We have to remember that the church's purpose in this world and in this life is to be the, the pillar and the buttress of the truth. We as Christians, to follow Jesus faithfully, must always be committed to the truth and the truth of the gospel. And that truth that we must always proclaim is this. You and I need Christ. We need him desperately. And we need him constantly. And we need his work in us to enable us to be everything that he wants us to be. Because in light of what Jesus did in conquering death, we should have no other purpose with respect to our lives than to desire to live and spend our lives fully for the glory of Christ. May we be faithful to do so. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us as we continue to live in this world, a broken world, and live within the church where much attempts to pull the church away from you. Help us to live with something so clearly set before us, and that is to be consecrated men and women, to be consecrated people who believe deeply that all that we can do in our lives uh, of any great value ought to be done for the sake of Christ and to do everything we do for the sake of Christ. Uh, give us the desire to do so, the will to do so, and many, many, many opportunities to do so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.